0: tendency is most people who are going to be doing communication in any form at all, what they are is they're, yeah, they're that bridge between world A and world B.
1: Hello and welcome to the Message Makeover podcast. I'm Dean Brenner from the Latimer Group.
2: And I'm Dan Cooney from the Cooney Company.
1: Hello, Dan. Spring is here, and vaccines are going into the arms. What a
2: moment in history, personal history, and world history. I got my first yesterday. It's a very it's a cool moment.
1: It really is. I was surprised at uh, my reaction to it and I don't mean the physical reaction. I mean the emotional reaction. I, I had a I, I, I was a little it the, the moment caught me and and it was uh, it was noticed by the really nice lady who was in the in the waiting room there making sure none of us passed out, but she noticed my, uh, she noticed my moment.
2: That's so interesting. Uh, Mrs. Cooney had the same exact reaction and also a kind and compassionate response from her caregiver. So yeah. it's, it's meaningful for all of us.
1: Yeah, it is a big moment. What a world we're living in and, and, and gratitude to all of those who are making this happen from the Latimer Group and the, and the Cooney Company. It is Absolutely. long time in coming. So, so, Dan, we have a, a great conversation here uh, today that we're going to share with our listeners. And, and before we introduce our guest, let's just quickly tell them about our new format, something that you and I, I think, are both really excited about. Uh, we both really respect time and other people's time. And we also have these great interviews, and we don't want to really shorten them up because there's so many good nuggets of wisdom in all these conversations. So what we're going to try here, and, and kudos to you, this was your idea, uh, we are going to do essentially a an executive summary discussion for about ten minutes on the front end. Each of us picking a couple of clips from our full interview and talking about them. And then for those who want to listen on, we'll uh, we'll play the full interview afterwards at the end of uh, at the end of our summary. I, th- I think this is going to be great.
2: I think it will be cool. There's nothing new under the sun, so this is just a. Uh a moment from my uh, getting through high school english so this is the cliff notes version of the message makeover right. podcast yeah
1: no this is going to be good so let's get to it let's talk a little bit about our guest uh we are joined today by dr jared horvath he is an award-winning cognitive neuroscientist with expertise in human learning memory and brain stim- stimulation he's also got some serious academic street cred a master's degree from Harvard, doctorate from the University of Melbourne in Australia, written six books, including a bestseller, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. That's the one that really caught our eye. And he he serves as a researcher at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and that's where he was for the interview. So, so we were literally on the other side of the world. Uh, his research has been featured all over the place. The New York Times, The Economist, PBS, Wired Magazine.
2: I've uh, heard of some of those, Dean.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I've heard a few of those too. Uh, and, and again, what a wonderful full conversation. But, but what we dug into with Dr. Horvath was a, a, a around communication, but specifically around how the brain functions via communication. And, and he, he brings a different perspective to this than what you and I are normally used to.
2: Yeah. I, I love the way he thinks. I love the way he describes things. Uh, he's really good at his the craft that he that he is an expert in, right? So he's able to get these points across in a way that's very accessible.
1: Totally. I mean, and we, we always talk about best practices to our clients about, hey, we think you should do it this way, this way, and this way. He can actually explain why those things work. Yeah, that's right. Right? This is, this is why it's true, folks. This is why it's true, folks. So we're actually bringing this guy on to back up a lot of the things that you and I always talk about already, but he gives, he gives the scientific reasons why. So, so let's, let's go through some clips, and you pick two and I pick two. Dan, okay. why don't you go first? Share your first clip with the audience.
2: Okay, uh, this is the clip where he's talking about communicators as a bridge between world A and world B. Let's
0: roll it. What they are is they're, yeah, they're that bridge between world A and world B. And the only reason they can communicate is because they understand the language, the, the terminology, the impact, the, the goals of each of those different realms. So they can comfortably say, here's how this aligns with this.
2: So, Dean, the reason why I chose that clip is I just love it. This is a combination of self-awareness, which we always think is very important, right? So self-awareness, where am I starting out? Like, what do I know? What's true for me, and what do I want to communicate? Okay, so it's self-awareness about where I am, and then caring about where your audience is, and then trying to bridge the gap. So I think that's the, that's the role of a communicator.
1: Yeah, I love it, and that's that's right in your sweet spot of, of connection, which is what the Cooney Company is all about. You know, I, I, I use a word to think about what he's saying. The, the, the word I use is translator, and and you know how how can I take what I'm talking about, and then translate it into something that will resonate with you you know, his world A and his world B. I mean, as the world gets more complicated, as the world gets faster, wow, that's a skill that's not going down in importance anytime soon, right?
2: Yeah, as parents, we do this with really young children. We're trying to think about, okay, what do I need to get across? And then how is it gonna come across to them because their brains are different, but we don't need to do this just for kids. We need to do this in our everyday communication with adults.
1: Totally, And, and it seems to come up in every workshop that I'm involved in. You know, how do I get this person to understand what I'm talking about? How do I get this person to hear me? Well, you know, you're in world A, they're in world B. You have to connect those dots. Yep. Build the bridge. All right. Let's go to our second clip. And in this one, he talks about, quote, the expert blind spot. Let's roll the
0: clip. Cole, and, and to, to be fair, it's it's totally fine. We, we call it, there's an official term for it. It's called expert blind spot is where once you get so good at a certain field, once you go so far down a particular path, you really quickly forget the journey you took to get there. And so you assume that, hey, everyone is kind of either at your level or you try and teach them at your level without recognizing or remembering the 10 years it took for you to get to make sense of that scatter plot. And so this is why, believe it or not, the experts in any field tend to make really poor teachers because they can't revert back to being a novice and say, where do I start? What's the very first word I need to learn? They'll just teach at their level. So it's, it's, it's one of the big things if you want to get into communication teaching is recognizing your own blind spots your own expertise and finding a way to strip that back and say when i was a year one student on day one in neuroscience class a what did i need to know
1: so you know what what i love there because we you know in our work we deal with a lot of experts whether they're engineers financial services experts insurance experts mining experts you know experts in their technical field and it is really hard for the person with an immense amount of knowledge about something to understand why somebody without that same level of knowledge just doesn't get it it is a true blind spot that is that exists it's real
2: yeah i always think about this uh in chip and dan heath's book made to stick The curse of knowledge. You don't know what it's like not to know what you know. Exactly. (laughs) You need to think about it.
1: I mean, and you think about it, you see it in sports all the time where the superstar athlete, name the sport, there's examples all over the place. When they retire, they want to stay close to their game, whatever their game is. They go into coaching and very few of them actually are able to make the jump from superstar athlete to successful coach. It's pretty rare.
2: Yeah, Michael Jordan could just tell a kid like, "Hey, you just start leaping from the free throw line, and then exactly. you dunk."
1: Right? Just do what I do. Yeah, just 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 know what I know. Just see what I see. Uh, again, that and connecting that back to your first clip, there's an element of translation in there as well. But you know, which is a theme that I think comes up all the time in communication today. But wonderful concept there, the expert blind spot. Back okay. to you, Dan. What's your next? All right, clip?
2: my second clip is. In the world of Zoom that we live in, <laughs> Dr. Horvath has a message for us
0: about the importance of being live. Let's roll it. Give me a group of kids that I teach live, like in a lecture hall. Now, give me a, now film that lecture and have another group of kids in another room simply watching that on TV. The only difference, no kid can ask a question, no one can talk. The only difference is one group has a screen, one group has me live, and you will see a difference in learning the live group will learn more. There is something about being live and in-person, even when you're doing nothing, you're not even asking questions, Right. that somehow we are more locked in, yeah. more keyed into the messages being sent, and learning starts to enhance. Wow. You know,
2: I don't, I'm not uh, thinking that the world of Zoom is going away. I think the way we work has changed forever. Of course, we're gonna go back to some extent to business travel and all that, and I can't wait to teach in the classroom again. But of course, we know that there's gonna be a little bit less of that and a little bit more virtual uh, learning in in many ways. That's fine, but I think what we're going to find out is that there really is something richer, something oh, in in a way, we, we don't know exactly because Dr. Horvath mentioned he doesn't know exactly, but there's something better, richer, uh, and more effective about being in person when we're teaching or communicating.
1: Absolutely, uh, and I think we, we've all experienced that you know if virtual is what you have then virtual is what you make the best of and there are by the way a bunch of benefits to virtual communication as well efficiency scheduling time zone management you know uh, not being away from family all sorts of good things when we don't have to jump on airplanes to to be together but but i it is important to understand his point that yes there is a bit of a difference and, you know, being aware of it, by the way, being aware of those differences is an important step in, in making the virtual even more valuable. If you're ignorant of the differences Dr. Horvath is talking about, you, you, may, you may not put in the necessary effort to make those virtual connections. So, so you know, re- really sp- another really spot on point from him there. And then the, the, the second one that I chose, our fourth clip here is around the craft of teaching, something near and dear I know to both of our hearts. Let's roll our final clip here.
0: The world now recognizes what we were just talking about at the beginning. That teaching, that presenting, that explaining, this is a craft. And like any craft, you can get better at it. And there are experts at it. And the experts when it comes to teaching are teachers themselves. And now that parents have had to take some of the teaching load, I think they're starting to recognize that, wait, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be
1: amazing and and you know my wife is a teacher like half of my friends are teachers and whenever I hear somebody say that they're really insulting you know those who can't do teach I just want to you know react let's just say react strongly when I hear that and, and you do see that sometimes with parents who are very successful in their uh, in their world commenting to the school where their kids are as if this is all so easy to do just just be better at it. Why, why can't you be like me? You know, you hear that from people all the time. Wow, I think we've learned how false that narrative is, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's such a craft to teaching. And just think about the few great teachers maybe in your life and think about what they did for you and how much they cared about their craft yeah. and how much went into it. Um, we, can't, we can't say enough and we can't thank these teachers who have gone yeah. through this past year and pivoted after pivot, after pivot, after pivot, and the ones that continue to, to shine and show us that they care about our kids, I mean, it's invaluable.
1: Totally. And, and connecting it back to some of our earlier clips that you and I have chosen here, you know, being a great teacher is about more than just being an expert in, the, in the, you know, the multiplication tables. You have to be able to translate, going back to one of our earlier things. You have to not have that expert blind spot You have to be able to connect with the people you're speaking to. And by the way, the younger your students are, the more different their reality is from yours, the the bigger the bridge that has to be gapped by the great teacher. Like to me, that whole recognition of teachers is completely consistent with the other clips that you and I have chosen here. Communication is about bridging gaps. It's not just about how much knowledge you have on the topic.
2: No. And for me, the great teachers were the ones that just sparked your curiosity and sparked your desire to learn. And then they knew that the the hard job was to to get that fire burning. And then you take it from there because there's also a part of there's a job about learning, right? Each of us has to learn and the teachers have to just spark that curiosity and desire to learn.
1: The, The teachers that I remember, the teachers that had an impact on me are not the ones that had the most knowledge and taught me the most factual stuff. The teachers I remember are the ones who connected with me and made me feel a certain way and made me excited about learning. That's what I remember. That's what made a teacher great.
2: Yeah. They passed the Maya Angelou test, right? They don't remember what you said. They don't remember all this. They remember, you know, how, how they make you feel.
1: Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. Well, listen, Dan, fascinating conversation, good clip choices, uh, here. And, And that is the cliff notes version of our interview, uh, for our guests, For our listeners that want to continue on and hear Dr. Horvath in full, hang tight. The full interview is going to follow now. For those that have heard enough, we'll just say thank you for joining us on another episode of the Message Makeover podcast brought to you by the Latimer Group and the Kooning Company. Thank you to our podcast partners, Company Cubed. And until next time.
2: So Dr. Jared Horvath, welcome to the Message Makeover
0: podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This should be good.
1: Yeah, we've, we've been looking forward to this conversation for a while and just really excited uh, to see where this goes. So first of all, for our listeners, you know, you're in Melbourne, Australia, catch us up a little bit on uh, fall in Melbourne, right? You're, you're into fall, we're into spring up here in the Northern Hemisphere.
0: Just starting to get a bit cold here. Yeah, we came out of, we had the really hard lockdown in Melbourne. So we had the seven months locked away in our houses. We finally got out for the end of summer just in time to see it turn cold so yeah we're we're kind of heading into miseryville right now but at well, least right. we can drive
2: now ladies and gentlemen i did look up on google you know what the temperature is going to be today and i understand it's going to be 76 degrees am i reading that wrong dr Horvath?
0: here in melbourne yeah oh shoot man maybe up in uh some other part that i'm not living in uh maybe that's what I like. We always say Melbourne is one of the the epitome of four seasons in one day type of place. Yeah. If it's raining, right. give it ten minutes, it'll be snowing, and give it ten minutes, and it'll be blasting. So if, even though it's cold right now, yeah, well, give it a, a day, maybe it will be seventy six. Who knows? And happy
2: Friday to you. So
0: oh, thank you. That's so. This is our thanks our big for getting up early. We really appreciate it. Way to wrap up the week. I like it. No worries.
2: All right. Well, let's get down to business. Let's, let's start up with this question that I have. Interesting. There's so much we want to talk to you about. We've really been excited about this interview, but we want to find out a little bit about your path. Tell, tell us about your path and how you got to study the science of learning. Where did you grow up and what was the process of figuring out that this was the area that you really
0: wanted to dig into? Yeah, so I'm, you can tell I'm stateside originally, so East Coast, then kind of moved all around. But uh, my background is, is originally in teaching, um, and that that's my true passion, is I love teaching. I love working with students. I love working with other teachers. That's just my game. But back when I was teaching, that's when the brain stuff, the neuroscience stuff, started to become really popular. So I thought, well, hey, if I go learn that, that'll make me a better teacher. If you know how the brain works, surely you'll teach better. And that was really only meant to be about a year or two of my life, but that's since become... 15 years, I've been stuck in academia. I mean, this thing is just, it's a black hole. When you're in, you can't get out. And, but that whole time, what I've been doing is, yeah, studying what's called now the science of learning. So we take neuroscience, psychology, artificial intelligence, behavioral economics, anything that has to do with learning. We pool all that together. And my primary job now, what I do is I serve as what's called a translator. How do we take this knowledge from the laboratory and make it meaningful, applicable in the real world. Because believe it or not, a lot of laboratory stuff is so, you all know, it's so clean and mm-hmm. cut away from the real world. Like we just lock someone in a room and have them do a task for two hours repetitively, which no one in the real world would do. So you have to have this think about, okay, this really clean data, how does that make sense in a real messy world? So that's just where I live now is I work primarily with teachers and students with the science of learning saying, okay, how can we use this to improve school behaviors and outcomes?
2: So when you were a kid in school, did you ever have any inkling that this is an area or it came on later in life? No,
0: No, that was uh, so. No, I was a filmmaker all grown up. It's all I wanted to do was move to Hollywood, go do film. And it wasn't till I was 23 that I started teaching and I didn't really get into science till 28. So, no, this was if you would have told young me you're going to be in science, I would have probably kicked you. Yeah, but filmmaking is is another way of translating, too. Right. That's what I think it, from where I come from, I'm, I, I see a straight line. To me, it looks like film goes right into teaching, which is kind of a performance, goes right into the science, which helps make sense. Everything I've been doing is help, helping me understand people. But from yeah. an outsider's point of view, I could see how it's just kind of like scattershot. Looks like I've just done a bunch of different things.
1: Well, yeah, no, but that, that well, first of all, that's a heck of a lot more interesting. Uh, and and but, but this this idea of translating let's just stick with that for a little bit and then and then we'll we'll get into some other things too but that that's a word that comes up a lot in our work too where when you're communicating in the workplace which is which is more our area and how do you help people get to the point and drive outcomes yeah. but but we we use that word translation or being a translator all the time and and that's a really fascinating way of looking at what you do it's 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 really not about anything more than how do I help you see something in a certain way or how do I help you hear something in a certain way? And, 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 you know, there's obviously a ton of science there would love to just hear a little bit more about how you look at that. Cause to me that, that get, we're very quickly getting to the heart of communication or communication gaps right there.
0: Yeah. And yet so what you, you tend to see is, is most people who are going to be doing communication in any form at all, what they are is they're, yeah, they're that bridge between world A and world B. And the only reason they can communicate is because they understand the language, the, the terminology, the impact, the, the goals of each of those different realms. so they can comfortably say, "Here's how this aligns with this. Here's how this needs to tweak to make sense here." And it's, it's never more obvious to me than it is between science and the real world, in that most scientists are, they have no clue what happens in, say, a business or a classroom, or God forbid, a house. And what they do is they just speak pure science ease. And then when you don't understand them and go, or you ask the question that everyone inevitably asks, what does this mean for me? Their only response typically is, well, read the data, isn't it obvious? Go back, you have to learn to be a scientist like me. So rather than, and and you see it's, rather than, than them taking the time to learn the language and rules of another field, they ask the other field to learn their language and rules. All they're doing is saying, we'd rather you translate up than me translate down. And so it's that's it's real hard to find those people who can sit right in the middle and say, since I've lived in a classroom and in a laboratory, I see where this overlap is, and now I need to be the one who can take teacher ease for scientists and science ease for teachers.
1: Isn't this not that different than... Going to another country, speaking in your native tongue, and then expecting
0: everybody to communicate on your terms? You say uh, you go to Italy for a visit, and you're like, why don't you speak English? Well, right. because they don't have to, and they don't you're, want you're to. Italy. So yeah. you need someone in the middle who can comfortably walk between the two worlds.
1: I love
2: Dean, that. Dean, we've never seen really smart, very technical people just throw up a scatter plot onto a PowerPoint and say, never. isn't it obvious? We've never seen that
1: right no, we have to be that's never occurred you know, no we have to make you be careful that we don't insult half of our client base right here dan
2: no no right? like i said really smart really smart well yeah.
0: it's called and, and to to be fair it's it's totally fine we we call it, there's an official term for it, it's called expert blind spot is where once you get so good at a certain field once you go so far down a particular path you really quickly forget the journey you took to get there and so you assume that hey everyone is kind of either at your level or you try and teach them at your level without recognizing or remembering the ten years it took for you to get to make sense of that scatter plot. And so this is why, believe it or not, the experts in any field tend to make really poor teachers because they can't revert back to being a novice and say, where do I start? What's the very first word I need to learn? They'll just teach at their level. So it's 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 one of the big things if you want to get into communication teaching is recognizing your own blind spots your own expertise and finding a way to strip that back and say when I was a year one student on day one in neuroscience class a what did I need to know to make sense of anything that was going yeah,
1: on honestly you see that in in sports too where like the absolute star athlete very rarely the, the one who's just the head and shoulders best athlete around really has a hard time be also being a great coach yep right? it, it's because-
0: there he's too locked in and he just says do what i do well i'd love to that is literally what i'm here to learn how to do but you forget that what is maya angelou says we all marvel in the beauty of the butterfly but no one wants to think about what it took to get there and i probably butchered the hell out of that quote but the point makes sense is what what does it require to get to that stage not mimic this stage
2: well we're constantly i'm constantly teaching the curse of knowledge so this is the expert blind spot that's right down our alley, and the idea is like, you don't know what it's like not to know what you know.
0: Yes. Yeah, and this is one of the hardest, hardest. This is why I love. By the way, I and I think it's worth plugging and making. COVID was one of the big precipitators of this idea. Teachers are experts at the craft of teaching. Teaching communication is in itself a field that you can improve and that there will be people who are experts in and that you can get. So just because you know something, that doesn't make you a good teacher of that thing. That is a different yes. skill set that you now need to lock down and, and yes. treat There's as no a unique skill. True.
1: There's no question that's true. Um, let, let, let's, let's pivot a teeny bit here, Jared. So you know, we're, we're fans of your work. And actually, Dan uh, was the first one who introduced me to your work and in particular, some of the, some of the thinking and writing you've done about the dreaded PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we, our business, we are, we are neck deep in the corporate world and our clients tend to use our firm and, you know, Dan, Dan's a part of this work in addition to his own work at the Cooney company. But, but a lot of the work that Dan and I have in common is when a corporation will bring us in and, and will ask us to, teach on communication. And part of that is how do you manage this tool? PowerPoint, yeah. We literally see 1000s of people a year struggle to use this tool effectively. And, and we've obviously got a lot of our own theories on it. But we would love to hear your theory on you know, how do how did we go wrong with this tool? It's obviously, you know, a very popular tool, but we, we all see a lot of people using it the wrong way. Yeah, help us help us dig into that a little bit.
0: It's to, to understand where PowerPoint went kind of astray <laughs> is go back to school, go back to high school. Um, when we learn something new, teachers use a bunch of things that are called scaffolds. So the idea is I'm the teacher, I still have the knowledge or here's a textbook that has a knowledge. What a scaffold is, is it just helps you walk with me through that knowledge. So the idea being that if you got rid of the teacher, the scaffold means nothing. But if you got rid of the scaffold, you could still technically do the learning because you still have the knowledge in the teacher or the book. So scaffolds are just meant to help things move faster. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, what happened in high school is somebody invented a scaffold that was so good that it replaced the teacher, and it was called the Cliff Notes. <laughs> if anyone who ever made it through school knows, rather than reading Shakespeare, I'm going to just go read the Cliff Notes. Why? Because it has everything I genuinely need to get through it. So it was a scaffold. It was inven- originally intended to just to help kids make sense of the books they were reading. But it was so powerful that it replaced the book they were reading, and it became its own learning apparatus. Mm -hmm. This is what happened with PowerPoint. PowerPoint, in all things that we use, are meant to just be scaffolds, right? They're just meant to help us get our ideas across. But if PowerPoint crashes and the computer fails, doesn't matter. I still have the knowledge. We can still do the teaching and learning. But what happened is we started plugging so much information into each of our PowerPoints that they became a Cliff's Notes of our presentations, and our audience really quickly learned, okay, I don't need you anymore. So long as I have access to your slides, to your PowerPoint, I will have every bit of information that I need. So a good rule of thumb with PowerPoint is, (laughs) if after a session somebody asks for your PowerPoint slides, you made yourself obsolete. Your PowerPoint slides should be totally meaningless without you standing there talking about them. And if the computer shuts down, shouldn't blank you in one bit. You should be able to keep cruising because you are the crux of information. Once we gave all of our power, our intelligence, our ability into the slides, that's when we pretty much just shot ourselves in the foot. And that's where this thing got, because it was so easy to use. You can see, we just sure. thought, well, we'll put everything of importance there. And students really quickly realized, well, if it's not on the slides, it doesn't matter. In which case, just give me your slides.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: Do you, does that sound, does that resonate with kind of what you guys have seen in the past, that it's become a standalone? source it, of information're It, does.
1: it, it you're, you're, you're coming at it a slightly different way than we do but we're, we're arriving in the same place i I, I think the way it, uh, the way that we see the the tool misused is that the the speaker thinks of it as their own script yep yep and they don't and we always say don't look at the slides in terms of how they are going to help you get through the meeting look at think about the slides in terms of how. They will augment, you know, it, it, add or subtract from the audience's experience, and so, and if your audience is literally having to read your slides because there's so much on there, they're no longer listening to you to yeah. your obsolete point, uh, your your point about obsolescence, uh, and and you you know Dan always talk Dan I love I love it when you start talking about those two voices, you know well, the voice that we are literally yeah. hearing and reading right.
2: That's from uh, Dr. Horvath. The whole idea is you can not only attend to one voice at a time and yeah. uh that the auditory cortex is lit, lighting up when you're write, reading silently to yourself from the slide and so you're not listening to the speaker because you you can't
0: physiologically right you, it's so. it's a brain issue and that's where you start to see is where most people i think you you make a really good point is when you use the slides as your note cards as your script you <laughs> that is where you make yourself obsolete is the audience now doesn't need you they have your script so congratulations they any actor can pick up any script and read any part i don't need you anymore right. so yeah. this is even in that simple thing where people start to say well i i genuinely need a script to present because i get too nervous or whatever sweet that's what note cards are there for you don't need to make the audience read your script while you're reading it you're reading it that's your job so their job now yeah. becomes to engage with what it is you're telling them and in, in yeah. which case dean as you said How does PowerPoint scaffold or augment or supplement what it is you're telling? Doesn't have to mirror it, shouldn't mimic it, it should augment it and add to it. Yes. So how do we move back into that realm where it's an addition, not an essential?
2: Yeah, so how does it support you as a speaker is what we try to focus on. And one of the things that, again, I took away from that lecture, I don't know where it was, but that was such a great lecture that you gave. Um, It's on YouTube. Do you know where you were? You,
0: no, I could. It was it was it all on neuroscience of PowerPoint. It was a neuroscience of PowerPoint. So you, you've oh, probably that given that I, a lot. But but it was one of probably at was, one of the unis. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it was one of the things I love to quote. I think it was from that lecture, is that the power of images and that the human brain processes images sixty five thousand times faster than text. Like, wow. To me, that was just a huge. It was a. It was a, a mind blown opportunity for me to to say this is what we should be using obviously images
0: well and if you think about it that is powerpoint for as much as we like to call that an advanced technology it's just a technology that mimics older technology in this case either overhead slides or a projector remember those old um what do you call it those little slides where you click the button and it goes and goes to the next one slide carousel the point is those things took forever to create so whenever you had, if you were going to build an overhead or if you were going to build one of those those slides, it was very specifically going to be a powerful image. You weren't going to spend time just writing random words on one of those things. You were going to make it meaningful while you taught over it. And so PowerPoint was nothing but meant to then to make that a little easier for people. And somehow that easier became, let me just throw text on here. But as you said, Dan, human beings cannot read while listening to somebody speak at the same time. It's a, it's a neurological bottleneck. If I'm reading something, I have to focus only on that, and then all th- noise or all voices that I'm listening to just become jarbled, or I'm listening to somebody, in which case I'm not really reading, my eyes are just moving over words. So the two never never go together. So what does go together is, think of TV. Think of YouTube. Think about what we're doing now is people can listen to somebody speak while looking at accompanying images. And yeah, an image, as you said, only takes 0.2 seconds for a general image, what we'll call a simple image to be processed, in which case (laughs) I've now lost absolutely no processing power while listening to you while looking at this image. Plus, I get what's called sensory integration in my brain. So as a simple example, if I just read you a list of words right now, so you hear them and I check your recall a week later, you'll remember about 10%. If I show you images of those words, you'll remember about 35% a week from now. But if I show you those images while saying the word, nothing's changed, all I've done is say the word apple while you look at an apple, now that jumps up to about 65%. So that's more than the 35 plus the 10. Not only do you get the original boosts, you get additional, and here's where we start to see the whole is more than the sum of its parts, so long as you're combining speech with images right and, I, and as, and yeah, as long
1: yeah. as there's not so much visually that it leads to cognitive overload you have to do it in such a way that they can process both simultaneously
0: bingo and here's where you start to see that most images so this works when images are what we call simple images um so you're just looking at what you call a standard picture of a garage of a house of a car cool where things start to go haywires when people put too many images at once so think about like when when you're going through photo album with your family you don't throw a hundred albums on or pictures on the table and say there it is you go one at a time so the brain can handle one image at a time so if we're thinking about images on slides it's not here's 50 cats it's here's one cat but more importantly things like graphs tables charts figures those aren't what we'd call simple images those are complex images and the way to discern it is this A simple image has a gist. So think about a picture of a mountain, right? You don't need to look at every stone, every pebble to make sense of the mountain. You look at one, you extrapolate, you get the gist, off you go. A table, a figure, a graph doesn't have a gist. In order to make sense of a graph, you need to know every bit of information to understand the whole. You need to know the words, the axes, the numbers, the lines. Cool. So this means when you put up a graph or a table or an image, it's not a simple Thing for for the brain to comprehend. In which case now, if you ever put up a graph and start talking over it, I as the audience have to decide do I devote my attention to discerning the graph, figuring out what all the specific specifics are to make sense of the whole, or do I listen to you? But in that case, I can't do both. So this whole thing about images flips on its head once you start getting into statistics and mathematics essentially.
1: Yeah. No, this, yeah this is totally, totally lining up with what we see and what we teach, because we deal with a lot of engineers that love Love spreadsheets, love charts. You know, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard somebody say, I know you can't read this graph, but. If, right? if you ever say chart. that, I know it's then get chart. rid of the
0: graph. Exactly. If, if you flat out can say, I know you can't see this, I know you can't interpret this, but let me, then get rid of it. You're not helping anyone by having it there. You're just begging them to multitask, you're exactly. begging them to say, Okay, well, screw you. I can't interpret this. Hold on a second. And now you've just completely lost your audience.
1: Oh, yeah, uh, exactly. You've, you've, you're, you'd be better off punching yourself in the face.
0: I, what I do, so I come at it from the science angle. So it's the same thing. Our, we've got our scientific, here's our T-tests that we've done, and oh, congratulations. Um, and what I always tell people is a good rule of thumb is if you came across that figure or that spreadsheet or that graph, image, in a journal article... How long would it take you to interpret that image while you're just reading the journal article? And most people say, yeah, it'll take me about 20, 30 seconds. Cool. You can assume it's going to take that same amount of time during a presentation, in which case right. you've now 20, 30 seconds where you've got to stand there silently if you hope anyone is actually going to make sense of that thing behind you. So if it's going to take you time in a journal article to make sense of it, then do not ask your audience to do that in a live presentation because it ain't going to work. In which case then you start to see, Dean, and it is – how then because we have to use graphs right you're a science you're an engineer you have to use these things is you just start to piecemeal them you can only talk about one part of a graph at a time you can never talk about the thing as a whole in which case only present one part at a time either highlight the bit you're talking about circle it or bring in the graph piecemeal like here's the x-axis here's the y-axis now let me show you the first person's stats oh now let me show you the second person's bring it in as you're discussing and this is an example of using the image to support the text rather than trying to get the two to go either head to head or toe to toe. I love it. So let's, let's uh,
2: pivot just a little bit, but we're still on the subject of learning, but we're going to go and talk a little bit now about school learning rather than the corporate, uh, the corporate environment. So your latest book is 10 things schools got wrong and how we can get them right. And you say that education isn't broken, but the world is changing. So yeah. how do we need to change with it? Dean and I both have school-aged children, and we're excited to learn something here.
0: That, yeah. So here's, I think, I think we make the big mistake um, of assuming that school is inherently flawed and that it's time for a revolution. And we all hear this. This is, this is the number one argument people make. Go to any TED Talk, and people will say, ah, it's time for a revolution. It's time to change. no. Man, school has been doing well for thousands of years. And if you actually look at the stats of where we stand now, there are more kids graduating than ever before. There are higher marks on standardized tests than ever before. The performance gaps are shrinking between men and women, between different cultures, between different races. We are succeeding. More kids have access to it than ever before. What we're doing is totally fine. And the irony should never be lost on people that... The people who give TED Talks on how broken school is somehow managed to get onto the TED stage by going through the same schooling system that we're all going through. So there's nothing inherently broken about it. But like any field, the point of expertise is to evolve, is to you're on the cutting edge. Your job now as an expert is to develop the next knowledge, build new knowledge that leads to the evolution of the field. So the next generation of people in your field stand on your shoulders and keep pushing forward. So no matter what field you're in, the point of expertise is to keep moving forward, adapting, innovating. And so that's where we start to say, yeah, is what are some things, some aspects of school that we can push, we can innovate that don't force us to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Nope. everything is fine. Just what can we do a little bit better on the fringe to make the next generation that much higher, continue to shrink those gaps, continue to, to get kids through. And like you suggest, well, the title pretty much says there's, there's 10 things that we take a look at, but I think one of the, or two of the big ones that would be worth hitting, um, especially since we've all kind of been here is one of them is computers is tech. Cause we all just went through the COVID thing. So did you guys have lockdown official school lockdown where you guys are at?
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, but not to the degree, not to the, what, what did you call stage four is what you guys had or whatever?
0: Yep. A... Yeah, where everyone was just Zoom. We didn't even go to school for the whole three terms of last year. We but knew we also, even like, were school. limited how
1: far, how often you could leave your home and how far away from your home you could go, right? Oh,
0: yeah. We had, we had a, a 5K radius that you were allowed to go and you could only go out for shopping or to go to the hospital, um, which was wonderful considering we don't have a supermarket within 5Ks of us. So we just we were flouting that rule left and right. We didn't care down here, but that's how silly things got here. But one of the so big we, things we, we learned. Not
1: as, not as bad. We, we, have our, we have our own brand of freedom here in the United States. and we,
0: uh... <laughs> this, that, was, that was when I'm proud to be an American. When you're stuck in your home for seven months, I'm like, you know what? I look at you guys, and I'm like, they're doing it right. Where uh, is my freedom? <laughs> it
1: all depends on who you
0: ask. So, that's a different it's it's, podcast. All <laughs> it's all comparisons. It's all comparisons. But, but, yeah, but yes, what you start to learn is everyone yeah. from COVID really realized, and we'd known this for decades, which was funny, is that computers are really, really bad for learning. They're really good for access, they're really good for ease of translating things. But this argument that the future of school is going to be tech is we've known for a long time it won't be and now the world is starting to catch on thanks to COVID that wait a second learning from a computer is very different than learning live and it's not as simple as just if I have a computer I'm going to do the same things I do live we have three decades recognizing that when kids start learning on a computer they can learn but learning drops significantly compared to live and in-person teaching so, so I think wait. one yeah, let, yeah.
1: Me, let me make sure I understand the distinction you're making though are you talking about, we, we, we use the words here a lot, synchronous versus asynchronous. Yep. Synchronous could be ver- over over a computer, but it's a live session. Are you saying even that is a, just a terrible learning environment, or are you talking about pre-recorded stuff is the terrible environment?
0: Give me a group of kids that I teach live, like in a lecture hall. Now, give me a, now film that lecture and have another group of kids in another room simply watching that on TV. The only difference, no kid can ask a question, no one can talk. The only difference is one group has a screen, one group has me live, and you will see a difference in learning. The live group will learn more. There is something about being live and in-person, even when you're doing nothing, you're not even asking questions, that somehow we are more locked in, more keyed into the messages being sent, and learning starts to enhance. So whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, asynchronous is a little worse in that it pretty much just begs people to multitask. Um, <laughs> Cause if I know I, if once learning happens on my time uh, it ceases to be important to me, it ceases to be an event. And once it's on my time, I kind of skip through it and I'll, I'll just kind of, and this is why if you look at MOOCs, MOOCs were meant to be our big asynchronous hero that was going to solve the world of everyone. All the millions of people who have taken MOOCs, 5% have completed and those 5% tend to be upper middle class white people. It's not the people that we were hoping to reach with MOOCs, which would have been people who can't everyday access education. Wow. So it's just it's, it was a failed experiment. Human beings aren't great learning with computers, largely because we spend so much time on this machine not learning. Every, every year you'll spend 2,000 plus hours using this machine to watch Netflix, surf the internet, kids will play video games on it, they'll do social media. Now, yeah. when you come in and say, now I want you to learn on this, they make it about six minutes till they go back to multitasking and just going, well, now that I'm learning, I've, I've been learning for six minutes already, better check my Twitter feed. And once you start multitasking, as you all know, that's the single worst thing you can do for learning. And everything just drops from there.
2: Well, Dean and I only use the computer to like go through literature and <laughs> PBS specials and things like that. Yes. Not <laughs> no, seriously, this is really... Incredibly interesting, and I totally buy it. Dean and I teach for a living in a corporate yeah. setting, and yeah. I miss in-person teaching. I feel I feel like I get more energy. I feel better in-person. I virtual has been great. We've been able to pivot, and we've been able to produce an experience that I think is high quality, and is yeah. we're doing the very best we can. And in some situations, it's the only thing that works. Certainly, for the last uh, year or so, it's been the only thing that works. But what is it? What's the neuroscience behind this in-person thing?
0: Well, this is so there's big debates. There's no big single one answer here. The one that we can play with comfortably is this idea of what we call neural synchrony. And the idea is this is once you lock in with another human being, so somebody starts a narrative and you lock in with them. What starts to happen is your body starts to release a chemical called uh, oxytocin, which just to be simple, oxytocin does a ton of things. But we tend to see it when babies are breastfeeding or when people are making love. So we kind of call this a bonding chemical. That's one of its jobs. Once I start releasing oxytocin, what starts to happen is I start to empathize with you. And if I could measure your brain. So let's say you're firing oxytocin while we're talking right now. If I could measure your brain it would look incredibly similar to mine. Not only would we start to listen to and talk to each other, we would start to think like each other in that moment. We would preempt any word about to come out of each other's mouths. That synchrony is what we think Mm. happens much easier in person. There's something about uh, oxytocin that it finds a much easier outlet when there's physical closeness when there's contact when there's somehow other people in the room versus a screen now to be fair you can get oxytocin we can get it when we read a book we can Mm -hmm. get it when we watch movies anytime we lock into a narrative it's just much harder to get with a screen than it is to get live got it so our first thought and that's the one we play with the most is this idea of neural synchrony is easier to lock in live than digital but beyond that that can't explain everything Mm -hmm. there's just and and this is where i love this is where science when i say experts at the edge have to keep pushing this is the edge that we're kind of at now is there is has to be some other exchange of information between people live that somehow can't crack through a screen but we don't know what it is there's Mm. some resonance some messages some ideas that we can read that you can't get anywhere else if you're not live Um, and a good example of this is if you just put (laughs) let two kids play video games on a screen all right that's how a lot of kids bond these days And you'll get a certain level of loneliness or sensation of of connectedness or a sense of belonging. Cool. So they do have friends online. Awesome. Let them play that same exact video game on a couch side by side where now they're in the same room as the person are playing that video game. They're not even talking. They're just still playing their video game. They just happen to be in the same room. And all of those measures start to tick up and they feel closer. They feel less lonely. They feel as though the bond is a little bit better. And that's the kind of thing where we're like, we don't know what. There's something. There's some exchange going oh, on. Then, okay, so post- hold on. Let me,
1: let me give you a personal anecdote here. You, th- this just jumps out at me as you're saying this. So I have two children. My wife and I have an 11-year-old son and a 5-year-old daughter. And that's a pretty big age gap. And there, there's a lot of things that they don't do together because, you know, six years at that age is a lot. Yeah. Uh, but they, there's this one game that they each can play on an iPad together that they love. And our daughter, who... Just looks up to her brother and and just really worships him like he can do no wrong. Uh, prefers dramatically prefers to play the game. They're they're on their each on their iPad, yep. sitting next to her her brother on the couch. He he do, he doesn't care as much if they're in different rooms. He's okay. He's kind of doing his little sister a favor. Yeah. But she get, and she talks about it. At five, she verbalizes mm-hmm. how much more she enjoys playing the game, even though they're each on a separate device sitting next to him.
0: There is an exchange of information at some level, and she gets it. You know who else gets it? Just, it's pets. All you got to do is watch pets. Is as soon as you go onto a screen, my, my dog, four years now, will start biting my ankle. So long as I'm not on a screen, I could be reading a book, Fine. I could be just walking. Fine. I could be taking notes. Fine. As soon as I pick up my phone, starts biting my ankle. There's something that changes wow. in a human being once we go screen that the rest of the world can pick up on. Or, well, we don't necessarily, maybe we can all pick up on it. We just don't pay attention to it. And we see young kids see, when I'm closer to somebody, I feel better than when I'm further away from that person. Pets do the same thing.
1: Any silver linings from what we've just gone through with, you know, with COVID and the schools, like, like if we're going to be glass half full
0: here. Yeah. Yeah. So tech is, so the good news, it's three things to recognize about tech. One is you, you, do learn from it. You can learn from it. It's just worse than live and in person. So it's not that tech is, is off the table where now everything is exploded. It's just longer. It's harder. It's more of a slog. So yep. you can do it. So don't think that we've all lost learning due to COVID. We're all fine. Two, you tend to see with technology, especially what we saw is this helps. There are some kids with what we we'll call non specific learning disorders. So, some kids have specific ones, like I'm blind, in which case tech is great because it helps me. I can get somebody to read a book to me. I can hear the audio. But, non specific are these kids who just kind of struggle and we're not sure why. Some of them have flourished during COVID. And we start to now understand their problem, their learning disorder was probably social anxiety. And somehow, being in a classroom in that realm of Expectations was really harming their ability to learn. And as soon as they stepped out of that realm, they, were, they actually increased. So there will be some kids who this is the way for them. Not a lot. It's 5% or so. But that 5%, this was an absolute godsend. And I think three is the, big, the biggest takeaway for me is the world now recognizes what we were just talking about at the beginning. That teaching, that presenting, that explaining, this is a craft and like any craft, you can get better at it, and there are experts at it, and the experts when it comes to teaching are teachers themselves, and now that parents have had to take some of the teaching load, I think they're starting to recognize that, wait, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Wait, teaching ain't as fun or exciting. Wait, I don't quite know how to get my kids to do this. Like The best example is my brother and sister. They live in Arizona, uh, so when they shut down, they had to homeschool, and my brother's like, I can do this. This is cake. He's never, never understood why I love teaching and, and, and just love, like put them on a pedestal, teachers. Two weeks into homeschooling, I called and said, how's it going? He said, oh, the kids are out at the pool. We've, we've quit. It was too hard. We're just going to let them play. And then when school starts, they'll go back. They couldn't even make it two weeks. So I think the, the biggest bright side is we're starting to recognize that, yeah, teachers and schools are doing a bang up job and now we can start to give them a little bit more respect and hopefully start to see them not as, oh, those who can't do teach. No, teaching is a very specific thing and these people have devoted their lives to it. We can give them more respect and recognize that. Fascinating. I
2: I feel like we did skip a little bit of a step where the health professionals, of course, heroes of the last year, frontline workers, the people keeping us in, in food and all the basic necessities of life, teachers are heroes. And it is a a really hard skill. And I think the people who have really worked at the craft have really differentiated themselves over the last year. And we we ought to give them their due.
0: And hopefully now COVID will, that's a good impetus for us to recognize, dang. Think of the pivot they made too. Same with doctors. Everyone did this huge pivot where it's like, I've never taught online, but overnight all of them were like, sweet, we're gonna figure out how to teach online and we're gonna build this ship while we're flying it. do that with our business. Yep. And that is, and I think that is one of the coolest things. The way that yep. human beings were able to do that on mass sure. was really cool.
1: Yeah. So, so let's, uh, let's do another pivot here, speaking of pivots. And, and to give our listeners a consistent experience, uh, guest to guest, we always end up, Jared, with, with four standard questions. We call these our big four. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the first one here. Uh, We would love to know who is your communications crush and why. It could be somebody in history. It could be a family member, a friend, a teacher, somebody who when you just look at the way they communicate, you're just like, Ugh, I I, I love that. I want to be more like that.
0: That is the person I want to be. Um, It is uh, um, David Attenborough. There's oh. just every time that dude opens his mouth, you're yes. you're, you're like, yes, everywhere. Oh. And what's, what's great is I, I saw that guy give a couple of lectures back at uni. He doesn't, there's not a slide in sight when he, he oh. can go an hour, two hours, just talking to you and you are oh. absolutely wrapped. So that is my, he's my guy.
1: That, 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 that's such a great answer. I, I could listen, he could whisper in my ear. All night long, I would listen to him. I, I would listen to that guy read a phone yeah. book.
0: That is, and it's, and you're there. It's the passion will come out. It'll be the best phone yeah. book you ever heard. And you're like, that's, that's
2: right. Really Why right. haven't I cared about phone books? Voice, more? the authenticity, <laughs> the expertise, <laughs> knowledge, yeah. care, passion all comes out answer. I'll tell you,
0: if you've seen his new one, that was, I was, I've been waiting for him to step up and talk about, because he's always stepped away from global warming. He's like, I'm not going to talk about climate change yeah. and stuff. And he finally, he's on his last step here because it's, it's a sad, we're going to lose him at some point. That's going to be a huge loss, but yeah, he's finally talking about it. And when he says it, you have to listen. It's Brilliant. Like, finally this hits home. Yeah, that's a great answer.
2: All right. Number two with the big four, what's your most cringe worthy communications moment? <laughs> Something uh, with, you know, I also heard on a recent podcast you talked about how important mistakes are in learning from your mistakes so this is an opportunity really, Jared
0: This is I, I always say my, my cringe is the first time I teach any topic my first time out of the gate that I've ever taught anything has just been an absolute nightmare across the board and I, and, and I like to think as I get older I'm going to get better at it but like two weeks ago I, for the first time I gave a, a discussion on emergence and the difference between the mind and the brain and I, you know, all this stuff and you prep all this stuff and yes. you got all, and you lock this stuff down, but you don't know what the hell is going to happen until you step out and do it for the first time. Amazing. And it's always, and it's it never, the, the, the things that you think are going to really resonate don't. And the things that you're kind of brushed by are like the things that people will ask most questions about, wait a second, what about, and, and that's, and to me, that's even if you get through it and you, you, t- we always, we'll always get through it. It's just afterwards, it's just cringeworthy to me where I go back. I'm like, how did I miss that simple point? How did I not see that they wouldn't care that that w-? And that's the expert blind spot that this is really important to me, but no one else in the world is going to give it. A- and that just happens every time I teach something new. So day one, but the joke is you got to do it. Right. It was, I it was, this is going to sound stupid, but I used to be in a band a long time ago and my guitarist refused to go do live shows until we had it perfect. And I was always just like, dude, you're never going to. And so we would do months with one song till he's like, OK, now we can go do a show. And it right. didn't matter. As soon as we did our first show, we'd screw up. It never mattered how much we practice. So that there's something about getting out of the gate. You have to screw up to figure out what's working, what's not.
1: This is great. Uh, question three of our big four. And we're going to come back to a topic near and dear to your heart of cognitive overload that there's a phrase that we attribute to Seth Godin, it's called, you know, a sea of overwhelm. Yeah. And and we love to ask our guests, you know, we're living in a really noisy world. We all have to manage lots of inputs, lots of information, and, and something we've clearly talked about in this conversation. But in this really loud, really noisy world, how do you manage all the inputs coming at you? Like, what's your little trick, if any? Maybe your answer is you don't manage it very well. But, you know, we have a lot of people in our community that are struggling to manage all of the things coming at us all day yeah. and they're feeling overwhelmed. How do you manage the overwhelm?
0: Uh, proximal goal setting, that's it, is is one thing at a time. Uh, the, the big joke about overwhelm or the thing we've seen is the more you multitask, the more you want to multitask and the harder things yeah. get. Once you start to feel overwhelmed, you're more likely to start multitasking and once you do, overwhelm increases. It's It's a vicious cycle. So once you recognize things are starting to get a little out of control, that's when I go back to the pen and paper and I just have a very hard schedule. I will only do emails from 10 to 10.15. Then I will only focus on this project from here to here. And that's once you get that structured proximal goals, every day I'm going to do these 10 things, that's how I start to make it through those really tough times. And believe it or not, although you feel like you're moving slower, you're not. It's the biggest joke is people who multitask don't recognize how much slower they're going because of that. They it takes them 2 hours to get through email and they think they're flying because they did 10 other things. They don't recognize that no would have only taken you 30 minutes if you would have done nothing but email and that would have freed up 90 minutes to do everything else. So it's it's one of the big cognitive blind spots is once you get into a, a multitasking groove, you think you're cruising and you just aren't. Wow. And it we're, feels slow when you unitask, but trust me that is how you get through this stuff.
2: We're s- serial taskers, not multitaskers. It's mm-hmm. it's a myth. That's a good one. I love it. Bingo. All right, Jared, what's your best communications coaching advice for a person on the front end of their career?
0: Um, (laughs) Narratize and feel. That's it. If you're just coming into this, don't be afraid. Your job isn't to impress anyone ever. And in fact, no one will be impressed. Most people who are starting out, that's what they think is, is I've got to wow the other experts in my field. You don't. Nobody, it's a sad fact, but nobody cares about being impressed. So I'm in in science, right? In my first five years, I did nothing but try and impress my bosses and all the, the PhDs and the professors in the world. Look, I can do what you can do. None of them care, man. All they want to know is the bit of information that I have new that they don't already understand. So once the quicker you can get by that idea of I need to impress you and recognize that narratization and feelings are everything is What is the story you're trying to convey? You don't have to give them every detail. What is the narrative you're trying to convey? Even the highest person in the world will thank you for that. And then if you're going to narratize something, feel it. If you're going to ever tell a story, the big trick is it's not about the details. It's not about the organization. It's about feeling it. If you're telling a funny story and you're laughing, everyone is going to laugh with you. If you're telling a sad story and you're crying, everyone's going to cry with you. But if you tell that same sad story and you're not resonating with it, people aren't going to resonate with it. They're going to tune out. So don't get bored with your stories. Feel them. And the moment you stop feeling a story, stop telling that story and find a new narrative.
1: Love it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Hopefully that there's, all resonates. And
0: we can we can go into the science behind all that, but just know that, no, that there's, no, there's so reasoning fantastic. for it.
1: No, I mean, you know, fascinating. Fascinating conversation, Jared. And uh, just couldn't be more grateful for this conversation. Like, you know, like all the good guests we have, this could go on for hours, but but we also have attention spans of our audiences that we have to manage as well, and we got to fit into this busy world, because yep. we want them to listen to, to your wisdom, and we want them to be fans of the podcast. So, so we'll pause it there, but boy, we could have gone on for two more hours there easily without even trying very hard. But really just so grateful to you for your time joining us from literally the other side of the world, and uh, just... Just thank you so much for joining us on the Message Makeover, and, and we look forward to following your 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 uh, uh, everything that, that you generate, and you know whatever books you have coming. Tell us again uh, a little bit more about your book, and you know plug your book before we let you go.
0: Oh, so this one, yeah, the new one is Ten Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. But for your audience, yeah. I actually think my last book is called um, Stop Talking, Start Influencing. Yes uh, and, and that is twelve chapters. Each chapter is a different principle of human learning that we can adapt and translate to say, okay, if I have to teach somebody, here's something that I need to be thinking about in terms of learning. So I think that book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, might be a little more resonant with, with your that's crowd. That's great. So something you know, might you want know to what into. we'll do?
1: When we, put, when we promote the podcast on our blog, we'll, we'll include a link to your book to mm. make sure that everybody knows where to find it. So. Thank
0: you. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much. And thanks for, for chatting with me. This that has was been really cool. It's
1: so
2: great. We're so gl- glad to have you, and we really appreciate, and uh, have a great rest of your Friday.
0: You too. Thanks, Jared.
1: The Message Makeover podcast is brought to you by The Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, online at thelatimergroup.com, and by The Cooney Company, the experts in business connection, online at thecooneycompany.com. And you can find the entire Message Makeover library on SoundCloud or wherever you download podcasts.